You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. Thanks, Bill. Listen in on my conversation with J.B. Douglas, the Cleveland-based VP of Foraged Market, an online marketplace for foraged foods where you can buy and sell wild foods and other products like morels, huckleberries, dried stinging nettles, and something called bear grease. You definitely want to know what that is. JB is an avid forager and recipe developer, and he loves foraging, even in urban environments, no matter what the season. In today's episode, we talk about the origins of foraging, which is an activity essentially as old as civilization. Speaking of food access, the Greater Cleveland Food Bank helped more than 350,000 people in 2022. If you're in a position to help, I would love it if you would join me in supporting the annual Harvest for Hunger campaign. This campaign is a joint effort of four regional food banks, including the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, the Akron Canton Regional Food Bank, and the Second Harvest Food Banks of Mahoning Valley and North Central Ohio. So this is the annual campaign where you can give a few extra dollars right at the cash register of your favorite grocery store. That's called Checkout Hunger. It's an easy way to give when you do your weekly shopping. With the buying power of the food bank, $1 provides three meals to those in need. Look for details at Heinen's, Giant Eagle, Gecko, Dave's, Lucky's, Fisher's Foods, and Bueller's. Thank you so much for contributing if you're able. And if you or someone you know needs food, please call 216-738-2067 or visit greatercleveland.foodbank.org. So foraging is really just the act of going outside and gathering food from the land. While it's not very complex on the surface, as we find out today from JB, there are a lot of issues around foraging that speak to history, politics, and the ownership and use of land. So let's meet JB Douglas. Hey, JB, welcome to the CLE Foodcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I can't believe we're actually meeting in person. I know. We've been sort of um, like Instagram friends for yes, a while. Yes, it's been a while since, since I moved here, actually. When I, when I first got here about a year ago, some of the old issues of Edible Cleveland and your Instagram account and your podcast were actually what kind of familiarized myself with the city. I love hearing that. Thank you so much. That's really, really nice. Um, and you moved here from California, right? I grew up in California originally, then to New York and Boston. So this it was a it was a, a journey from the eastern eastern seaboard. I forgot about that East Coast leg that yeah. you did. Yes, you have done a lot of things. Well, I've been following you for a while, and I'm really captivated by the idea of foraged foods. These are not a new thing. In fact, it's a very old thing if you want to get down to it. But I admittedly am not doing a lot of foraging myself and um, for good reason, because I probably don't really know much about what I'm doing. And as I read about foraging, there's just so much to it. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, there's a fun duality there. There's a lot botanically and mycologically that you can deep dive into. There's a lot of social understanding and racial justice and environmental justice that goes into the practice. But also at the end of the day, there's also nothing simpler than us taking walks out in nature and being around the woods and being around the earth. Um, so it's both, mm -hmm. right? If you want to like deep dive into yeah. it, it can be very complex, but um, foraging is for everyone. And I think it is like perhaps one of the most accessible and natural things we can do. 
Well said. And I imagine as part of your studies with CIA in sustainable food systems, you are thinking a lot about those very issues. So tell me about that. You are currently in school right now, right? That's right. So um, I'm in the first cohort of, um, as you said, the sustainable food systems at the Culinary Institute of America. Um, And so that curriculum is, I think, really well built. They're looking, um, you know, at climate change and how it's going to be affecting agriculture, the racial and environmental justice that goes into food, food access, hunger, public health. Um, uh, It kind of focuses on like the thought leadership around building food systems. So I'm there to specifically look at sustainably and equitably developing the wild foods industry. Mm -hmm. And alongside that, you have what I think is a pretty cool role uh, at Foraged, which is an online marketplace for wild foods. Yeah, I would also agree it is a very cool (laughs) job. Um, Some would say that the description was written for me um, uh, because it was. It was exactly what I wanted to do, and I was so excited to get involved. Okay, and it's a pretty new company. It's a startup um, that, uh, I mean, I've been on the website. It's really fascinating to see the marketplace that exists for things that you know, things maybe that I've heard of, but a lot of things that um, I didn't realize could be purchased online. Although I guess we can buy anything online, let's face it. So tell me about Foraged. Um, Like you said, it's an online marketplace for wild and specialty foods. So it's not just foraged foods, but that's definitely where it started. And that's kind of the base of it. And you can kind of think of it like 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 Etsy, uh, but for food. So the money that you spend on that site is not going to line our pockets. It's going directly to... Um, the foragers, the farmers, the small food producers. So it's this way to kind of democratize the system of, you know, buying and selling wild foods. Um, It's a way to support the livelihoods of these rural people and small food producers. And uh, you get to feel really confident that you're making purchases of foods that have been sustainably harvested Mm -hmm. um, and are doing good for the earth. So if you go to forage.com and you see, uh, I think I saw like huckleberries. Yeah someone or maybe even multiple people are out there wherever they are in the geography of the United States picking these things, harvesting these things, and Forage is a place where they can actually sell and connect to a customer. Correct. Yeah. So prior to this marketplace, a lot of foraged foods that were being sold were going directly through a distributor. And those distributors are often you know, taking a very high percentage of the cut and then selling them at exorbitant right to exorbitant price to chefs. Um, so I think a lot of us are familiar with foraged foods as it exists on like a fancy fine dining table. Right. Um, and there's like this, that real, that's like really incongruous with the history and experience of poor rural communities um, that are foraging a subsistence, right? Because they need to. They're exactly. foraging because they need to. Right. Exactly. So you had the system where they were very expensive for chefs the people that were actually doing the foraging weren't making any money, and uh, they were only getting put on rich people's plates. Uh, and so, to me, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into that that can yeah. be fixed. And so, um, this is one of the one of the solutions I think towards making foraged foods more equitably available. Well, something else that struck me is that a lot of foraged foods, well, a lot of foods in general, but a lot of foraged foods are they seem to me highly perishable. They do not have a huge or long shelf life. So how does that work? Yeah, it definitely depends on on the product, of course. Um, uh, we, because we're the marketplace platform where we're like, 
we're able to get larger discounts with shipping carriers. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're interested in shipping products, you know you can you can just do local pickup. You can just do um, local sales if that's what you're interested in. But if you want to ship, being on Forge means that those vendors have access to highly discounted USPS and UPS rates, mm-hmm. which um, the custom that means the customers are more likely to purchase. They are are spending less money. Um, so it's one of the ways in which that rising tides kind of lift all all yeah. ships on the site. We, as the marketplace platform, get to provide the SEO expertise, the shipping discounts mm-hmm. for perishable products, the advice about packaging so that things can get to the customers um, uh, efficiently. Yeah. Not only that, but also marketing, because these folks that are out foraging are probably not like, oh, hold on, let me post this on Instagram. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know? I mean, that's something that, as I've done this podcast has been so interesting for me to learn and is connecting with really small businesses. Um, after you grow the thing, make the thing, produce the thing, you sort of sit back and you're tired and you're ready to rest. And then you're like, oh no, I have to Instagram the thing. I have to market the yeah. thing. And it's, I mean, I take it for granted. I think in your role, you can easily take it for granted too. Uh, maybe we have a knack for it or we're comfortable with it, but not everybody is. And I wouldn't imagine that a guy out foraging for mushrooms every day wants to come home and worry about Instagram. I think that's exactly correct. And that's exactly <laughs> what we come um, to the rescue with, I'd say. Um, so there's a lot of interesting work being done around food production for uh, forest-grown foods, for other wild-harvested foods. Um, and there, I think, in my perception, there's like a, a lack of um, infrastructure and energy towards the distribution and the marketing mm-hmm. and the packaging and the um, processing for those foods. So. Interesting. I love it. Um, well, so foraging for me, like, conjures up certain images. Um, I think of, you know, as a kid when we used to be able to wander without fear, we would just go out in the woods for hours. Our parents would never check on us. And some kid I would be with would be like, oh, these are really good to eat, these berries. And we'd all just eat them because some kid told us they were right. So there was that, the picking of wild berries. Um, there's, um, you know, as an adult, um, through my food work and exposure to foods, I've I've started to, you know, I guess, forage my own ramps. I, I went out this year and really tried hard to find pawpaws, you know, that kind of thing. And then I think there's, um, we were talking about before that that more elite level of item, like the truffle, the thing that appears on um, you know famous chef and restaurant plates. So let's boil it down for just a minute. What at its core is foraging? Yeah, great question. This is a definition that I'm sometimes struggling with um, being in school because I'm looking at policy, I'm looking at academic papers, I'm trying to make sure that the definitions are logical and make sense. Right? I think. Uh, most people describe it as a food that is harvested with no like human interaction in the in the production phase. So nothing was sown, nothing was like tended or or changed in the in the growing process. Like oh. the first human interaction is like when you when you harvest. Mm. Um, so I think that's, it's 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 found in nature. By nature, it, it ends up there. Correct. With, without human intervention. Yeah, I think that's a, a general broad helpful way to think about it. Because if you plant some huckleberry bushes, you're not foraging. Yeah, and I think that's a that, that's a contentious question, right? Yeah, like okay. it's like it's like is it is that wild sown? If you haven't touched it during the the process, is it still considered mm. a wild food? Is it where did the seed originate from? So it's kind of a gray and blurry definition. Um, I think that's why sometimes I say wild foods industry because to mm. me, wild foods encompasses more than just the act of foraging just a wild thing. It can include a lot of these other um, tangential industries and practices that are kind of in the same world. Okay. 
Yeah, there is. I keep uh, every time you say something, I'm like, yeah, I got to stop and think about it. <laughs> um, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because I think it's really easy for us, um, especially. I'll speak to Cleveland. I know you're you're newer to Cleveland, but let's go back. Um, let's see, we got to go back pre-COVID. So let's go back about five years ago when Jonathan Sawyer was still here and Jeremy Umansky worked with Jonathan Sawyer. So it might have even been closer to six or seven years. And these two were just starting to put out on social media these treks into the wilderness to get stuff that would end up on like Trentina's plates, right? And, um, you know, I mean, all of the, the fat, the beef tallow candles and all that stuff. It was very mysterious and interesting for a while. And then, you know, Jeremy started to lead tours and people out into the woods to teach responsible foraging and, you know, with all of his creations and he's like this mad scientist, you know, a lot of foraging people, especially that's like the preservation piece of all the forage stuff, right? Um, So I think when you are here in Cleveland, that's what you think about because we're this like, I guess, like industrial-based city with access to nature pretty close by. But let's face it, most of us aren't going out. And so for me, the gateway thing to foraging was ramps. Like I love ramps. I think they're delicious. I had them enough times and I was just like, wait a minute, I think I can go get some ramps myself, you know? But I took the time to learn how to do it I think sustainably the way that I believe I'm doing it is good. I don't like to tell people where I go. Um, And of course, when Jeremy leads people, he's always careful to say, you don't just go out and find a place where there's stuff growing. There's a lot that goes into it, right? Like private property versus not private property, parklands, all of that. So I guess the next question I have for you is when it comes to foraging, is a lot of that happening on... I guess, I don't even know if you'll be able to answer this, but is a lot of that happening on wild lands or um, do people who forage like to just be like, don't worry about where I'm getting it? Like, how's that work? Um, uh, On the record, I'm going to (laughs) obviously say that everyone is always getting permission. And I think this is also a... a, a, I'll 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 do my best to not spin into a a larger lecture about this, but um, I think it's also raised a lot of interesting questions about land ownership, Mm -hmm. especially in a region that is such a history of transience. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We have like Northeast Ohio has like a really interesting um, native native American history and how land was used and and uh, by multiple different people. And over the course of the last 400 years, there's been such an interesting blend of immigration and migration patterns in and out of the city. Um, So when we're thinking about like private land and public land, there's a lot of like weight that comes to that. There's a lot of like racial history that comes into that. There's a lot of political history that comes into that. When you're foraging, you should absolutely be doing it um, with permission of the park service or the private uh, land owner. Um, That being said, I think that we have a lot of work to do to normalize and and push towards policy that is more inclusive and thoughtful around how we think about the nature around us and what what land um, people have access to. Well, it's kind of like um, if you live in a place where there's beachfront and then all of a sudden there's no beachfront access, you know, Mm. you have to actually, you know, some communities have to write in like laws so that people that live in a space can access beachfront, right? Because everybody's built on it. I mean, that's just a crime, you know? So I can see how there are some parallels to um, having access to, you know, wild foods. And of course, while so many people are very thoughtful and responsible, of course, 
with profit being an incentive for a lot of people, you know, people that have this idea that I'm going to go and find all these pawpaws and for exactly three weeks a year, I'm going to make money off of pawpaws. I mean, that's, that's a pretty difficult endeavor to do if you're just relying on accessible land. Yeah. I think that there's, there is a little bit of a misconception that this uh, recent increase in foraging is like entirely financially motivated. Right. I don't like, I, the people that I talk to and know in the community throughout the United States um, are by and large not in it for the money because I don't think that foraging is <laughs> is the get rich quick is get rich quick scheme. And also a lot of foragers maybe don't want to engage in like the buying and the selling of a wild product, right? Mm. Um, and I think that's really fair. Uh uh, you know, gift economies are really important in that community. Um, which is why I always say like Forage may not be for every single forager out there, but for the communities that are interested in the economic development of that space, like yeah. it's a really powerful tool mm. that does not rely on systems of people lining their pockets with money, right? Mm-hmm. Because that money is going straight, straight to them. Um, so in your experience, um, in your studies and in your personal experience with, with food and foraging, um, what you said is just interesting to me. Are there there's sort of an integrity with foraging, right? Like people do it. it it's very, um, how do I say this? It's, it's, it, it sounds like the, it's, it's very precious to them. It's very special. It's, it's like they're gifts of nature. Yeah. So um, if they find a patch of um, chicken of the woods, mushrooms, they take it home, they, they use it. They're feeding themselves. That's goal number one, yeah. right? In a lot of cases. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of foragers are, would identify as conservationists. Um, they're, a lot of times they're, focus on the removal of invasives. I think a lot of them would identify as um, advocates for the indigenous community because there is no foraging today without those communities and that knowledge and that sharing. Mm. Um, And I'll also say, I think when we talk about foraging, especially in urban spaces, especially in 2022, in this, you know, uh, post-TikTok, current TikTok era, Mm -hmm. we describe foraging like it's, like it's an activity with a beginning, middle, and an end that you like go out, there's something that you do when you finish, right? Right. Where I think prior to like 100 years ago, and even in other cultures and countries around the world today, you don't describe it as foraging like an activity. It's, it's a simple way of life in which you are naturally attuned to the flora and the um, fungi around mm-hmm. you. And it's like very normal to grab the pawpaws from your backyard or see those dandelions and throw them in the pot that evening, right? Right. That that there's like a continuous way of life that is just more in tune with nature and understanding the area around you. I totally realize now the way I'm speaking about it is kind of hobbifying it. And I think that's that's fair. I think that's how it's talked about a lot today, right? Um, And so we have to contend with that. But there, so there's a lot of different perceptions of how it's coming in and to and out of um, people's lives today. All right, JB, this is a big question, um, but I think you'll have some background, particularly because of your studies. You mentioned a little bit earlier that um, you talked about the colonizers, the way um, people have come in and taken indigenous knowledge and used it for their own gain. That's, That's something that happens throughout history. We're even seeing that something similar play out, right, in the whole um, food desert situation, right? I mean, people are losing access to things that they always had. Um, So what role does the knowledge of indigenous people and cultures have in 
foraging today? Yeah, I think it's the it's the base, it's the root. To me, you have to start with. A lot of people find their way into foraging through, you know, their own rural cultural history or from their own time in the woods. If you are a person that is entering that space for the first time and just being that journey, I think your responsibility to start with whose land this is and mm-hmm. it's not our it's not our own um, and so learning uh, the culture of that region that you're in learning the history of the land that you're in um, to me is the most important first step to um, communing with nature and then learning to forage mm. I think that's well said. And we're not really good at, at that in America. No. I, <laughs> in fact, one might say that we're terrible at it. Yeah. I think we're starting to see a lot more, um, uh, you know, complex conversations around land ownership and stewardship um, happening, uh, you know, within the foraging space and also in the broader mm-hmm. agricultural space mm-hmm. um, and in, in uh, park management spaces. Um, but I think we have a long ways to go to make that conversation more actionable. Yeah. Well, in a way, again, I'm going to take this to the urban environment. I've been giving this a lot of thought lately. You know, you have parcels of land that could be used to grow and sustain healthy, nutritious food for communities. But people who have money can come in and buy that and put up a a seven-story apartment building. Exactly. With you know, market rate apartments and then ground level retail that that community cannot access. Exactly. Yeah. And this is something I've been kind of spinning about a lot lately and um, around potentials for urban spaces to include more forest farms, to include more wild spaces with more trees um, that can have edible mm-hmm. um, parts on them. Uh, trees are one of the few pieces of infrastructure that actually appreciate in value over time and can contribute to cooling, can uh, contribute to food sovereignty in an area. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about these empty lots that I'm seeing around Mm -hmm. Cleveland that can be used for development for Mm high-rise expensive um, apartments. What if we were able to see them as mini forests on a single parcel of land Mm -hmm. that Give the give nuts and fruit and mushrooms and herbs. Right. Even just the people on the block. Right. Yeah. What would that do to a community if they had that immediate access to to wild edible plants? Yeah. And and not to mention like things like beauty and nature and shade yeah. and uh, clean air and all of yes. that. You know, it's very interesting. I had an experience in November. I was in Costa Rica, and um, this uh, Costa Rica is wild. You know, very wild and. Uh, rural and forested and all over the place, with the exception of a couple of cities, right? So in um, San Jose, uh, we decided we wanted to take, uh, we had some time to kill and we wanted to take a tour. And we discovered this um, urban sort of forest tour. Um, Now, I would use the term forest very loosely, but the bottom line is it was a parcel of, a fairly sizable parcel of forested land, of indigenous Costa Rican trees, um, and it happened to be on the property of the University of Costa Rica. So we trekked through the city to get to this place. But at the end of the day, we saw amazing birds, insects, and actually 
um, sloths um, in the middle of San Jose. No way. In the trees. Um, but it was so interesting. Be- and they were very, very protected. They weren't like protected with like fencing, everything like that. It was just kind of common knowledge that this was part of the um, the university's research, uh, flora and fauna studies, their biology studies. But it was just so interesting to me because again, we're in this middle of this dense city and there was this just oasis of beauty. And there were, there was, there was a, a water, um, a a natural stream going through and a a little mini bamboo forest. And I mean, we saw more nature there and up close with binoculars than, than I did sometimes out into the, um, more, um, wild areas that I was in. It was very, very cool. And I just started to think about like, like everyone knew that this place existed and, and so many people were out enjoying it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when I came back here, I just started to think about like, wow, there's really, there's just nothing like that, you know, not, there's not, it's not, we don't really have that like central park. Not that that's even enough, (laughs) Right. it's something. Yeah. And like heard totally. I, and I think in a lot of the North America, we have, wait, you know, that colonizer mindset that like urbanization or society has to happen in one place and nature has to happen in another place. Um, and that there's, again, in the hobbyist sense that like you go to, um, a place and then you come back that there's like, some people call it the myth of the wild that like, it's a myth that there is a place that is untouched and that human, uh, that if there's no human interaction, that it's more pure that way. When I think in in reality, especially if we look at indigenous history, Nature thrives better with human interaction and that, um, and that give and take and that understanding that stewardship. Um, so I want to see more of that come back into urban spaces. There's no reason that we can't eliminate lawns and put in more trees. There's no reason that we can't have more uh, wild blackberry and wineberries in all of the parks that people can just grab. Right. To be fair, we do have the Cleveland Metro Parks who have over time, taken over parcels yeah. of land and done a great thing. But, um, you know, um, maybe, and this might be contradictive to the foraging idea, but I wonder as they let those places go wild, um, if there are wild foods and, and interest and things like that growing, you know, yeah. cause they're not, they're not, pl- I don't think they're saying we're going to plant a grove of huckleberries or we're going to, we're going to make sure mushrooms grow here. But over time, I would imagine if left to its own devices, nature takes care of itself. For the most part. Yeah. Uh, and then the and we were even um, talking a little bit before this. Like there are a lot of species that will grow better with harvesting, right? Mm-hmm. That they need to be thinned out or need to be harvested in a certain way, and that it's actually better for the environment um, for that to, for that to happen. Let's go back and talk about some of that. Um, you know, f- when I think of forging again, I think of a couple of really basic things, and then you go on the website forage.com and you're, I'm like, Oh wow, there's a lot there. And you're right. There's other things on there too, like duck and some wild meats and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But you know, something that I was thinking about, um, every spring on La Campagna in Westlake, it's an Italian restaurant in Westlake, small little restaurant. Carmela is the, the chef and the woman who runs it. She almost always has stinging nettle soup. Ah, yes. Right. Okay. So what's funny (laughs) is I had never heard of it before. And, um, before edible sort of, uh, when spirited away, I had always wanted to do a story and a recipe on stinging nettles. So again, there's just so many greens and plants and barks and, 
Um, I don't know. I love mushrooms. So when I see how chicken of the woods mushrooms can be actually like breaded and fried up and I mean, there's some really, and that, well, you're a culinary guy. So you develop some of these recipes and you have experience cooking them. So what kinds of things are you going out and finding? I mean, are you, do you forage regularly? Do you have time to do that? Is that how, is that a cornerstone of your own diet? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, important to my work, but it's also important to me as a person. Um, especially in the warmer, warmer months, I'm out there three or four times a week. Um, but also, you know, sometimes it's not going straight to a big park. A lot of times it's, um, grabbing some mulberries from the tree on my block. Sometimes it's collecting the maple samaras that are, that fall down on my, um, on my sidewalk. Uh, it's a huge part of it. And I, and I have this huge passion for teaching people how to cook with those things. There's so much magic and so many um, so much flavor that is growing right on your own block on your, in your own little city park that I think is really exciting to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, the website itself, can anybody purchase on there? You don't have to be a, a restaurant to purchase on there, right? That's correct. Yeah. I, the majority of our, um, purchases come from home cooks. Um, we see a lot of people, you know, the boomer generation that maybe grew up getting, uh, collecting wild berries and morels, um, in the country and then haven't, seen them in, in, in 50 years. Mm. Um, and there's a huge nostalgia factor to be able to see that again. We also have a lot of, you know, millennial home cooks that, uh, of like influenced by like the bon appetits of the world that love hosting and want to like, Mm. you know, try a truffle for the first time or do a taste test with some new spices. And then we have the younger people that, you know, really care about, um, voting with their dollars and making purchases towards the small businesses and sustainably harvested foods. Um, so there's something for everyone on there. Um, and this might go back to some of the conversation we had earlier about the influences of early indigenous peoples. What about medicinal purposes? I would think that that is some, a place I would, I would think that forage.com is a place where people go to find things that for naturopathic remedies and the like. Yeah, definitely. There's, we do, we do have a wellness section. It, it kind of speaks to, um, the way that a lot of foragers are, have their hand in a lot of different things. A lot of them, you know, make, make food, they make medicine, they use food as medicine, they make crafts. It's all about that, you know, continued exploration and understanding of the natural world around you. Amazing. So what kinds of things are you excited about now? Is this a time of year? Uh, what is it? It's January. So what are you able to find? Yeah, this is the cold season. So the list is definitely shorter than other types of the year, but, um, um, I'm always trying to bust the myth that there's no foraging in the winter. So some favorites, uh, woodier mushrooms and, uh, amber jelly roll mushrooms. They kind of look very similar on the branch. They stick right to the, um, mm. right to the branch. Uh, like they're like shelf like kind of, yeah, they're, they look, they almost, I mean, not to get weird with it, but they look like an ear, hence the name woodier. Okay. Um, so if, you, if you've ever been to like a, like a ramen restaurant, sometimes there's like sure. thin strips. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. It's the same, it's the same. That's a cultivated version of like a wild version. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, the amber jelly rolls are a little bit different. They're a little bit of a softer texture, but mm-hmm. those I often find, um, here in the winter, um, or I should say often, this is my second, second winter here. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been having a wonderful time. I get the, to explore the parks by myself. Um, uh, so lots of mushrooms and I dehydrate those and I'll use those throughout the year. Um, there's also some like really aromatic twigs and twigs at this time of year, um, particularly from spice bush, mm-hmm. Lindera benzoin and sassafras. Okay. They smell like Fruit Loops. I mean, they, mm. it, it really is so fruity. Making a little tea with that is ah. just delightful. Oh, or a syrup, uh, shag bark, hickory bark, 
is a great syrup. It's a little bit smoky, a little bit car- marshmallow, caramely. Um, there's so much out there, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't know it because it's like we're it's not commercially produced. So like we're we're completely like this is. I heard of all the things you just said. I mean, I know mushrooms pretty well, but like. Um, I've heard of sassafras, but not really anything else that you had said, you know? Yeah. And I think this is part of my, like, I don't want to say life's work, but like part of my journey is I want to show people the breadth of flavors that are native to North America, right? There is almost always a one for one swap, um, Mm. with any piece of produce or any flavoring or spice in your kitchen. If you give me something, I can, I probably have something, um, in the back of my head for it. And my journey is always to add to that list and try to try to expand that, um, that lexicon a little mm-hmm. bit more. What are some, for, for lack of a better term, low-hanging fruit yeah. <laughs> foraging <laughs> items that um, could be sort of a gateway for people? I mean, I would say that ramps for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, ramps are everywhere for about a month. You know, once you know what they look like, you spot them yeah. everywhere, really. Um, and they're so easy to... I would say they're easy to harvest. They're easy to harvest in a sustainable manner. As you were saying, in some, in many cases, harvesting them is good for the ramp patch. But outside of that, I'm not sure I feel comfortable going out on my own. So how do you tell people, like, what's the process to maybe get started? Is there a a resource, a book? I mean, I'm sure some of these recipes that you've been using, (laughs) um, you know, are from some you know, very old, uh, texts, but there are chefs across the country that specialize like yourself in cooking wild foods. So where would you direct people? The first thing I'll say is that it is so important to learn from a diversity of sources. And I don't just mean, I mean, I want, you want to look at diverse, uh, peoples. Um, you want to look at diverse types of media, learn from videos and from books and from blogs and from TikTok. Um, there is so much that goes into understanding, you know, a thing and seeing it all in all different seasons of the world um, that you can never um, get it all. So the more anecdotes you can um, put in your brain, the more resources you can go to, the better. There's a few like major culinary uh, blogs that come to mind. Uh, Alan Burgos, Forager Chef. I was on his site. Very yeah. interesting. Um uh, Hank Shaw is a pretty pivotal piece. Um, and anything in the last, I'd say like post 2005, there's a, there's a, a pretty broad set of foraging, um, books that have been produced. Um, Sam Thayer's work is always, uh, uh, pretty pivotal. Um, the regional foraging series, uh, so a lot of late, late Emeritus book will be applicable to this region. Um, if you're looking at Cleveland, um, and then of course, um, there's a, few foundational books like Braiding Sweetgrass um, that are, are really important to understanding um, contextually how you're thinking about foraging. Yeah, more of the ethos, I would yes, say. Yes, correct, right? yeah. What, and what about um, new media? Because again, even though you and I were totally like <laughs> lamenting our Instagram woes uh, before yeah. we started talking, um, the fact is, is that, you know, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok are really pivotal for, I think, a younger generation yeah. to learn some of this stuff. Is there anybody that's leading the way there? Absolutely. And I think uh, the first one that's going to come to mind for a lot of people is Alexis Nicole Nelson, Black Forager, who's just very close by in Columbus. Um, So a lot of her work will actually be relevant to people if listening in the Cleveland area. Um, But there's um, endless accounts. If you were to 
go to my Instagram and look who I'm following. You'll get a great list. Uh, you can, Orion out in Colorado, Laurel Morel, um, uh, Feral Foraging in the South, uh, uh, Michael Baker and the Wild Edible World podcast um, up in the Upper Great Lakes. Love it. Yeah, there's a lot out there. All right. Well, so you should definitely go to JB Douglas's Instagram page. He's a little busy right now because he's like foraging and going to school, getting a master's and <laughs> and, then ha- and, and then having a job too. Well, this has just been so interesting. Um, foraging, like many things around food, it's bigger than us. It's not a, just about getting something, you know, to your mouth, right? There's a lot to think about, increasingly so. Um, as I read about the master's program that you're doing, um, I just never really thought about how climate and food policy, um, it, there's just a whole universe of things that we should all take into consideration when it comes to what we eat. And like you said, we vote with our dollars. Exactly, yeah. And I, we've you know, spun into a lot of different conversations today uh, because there's a lot that goes into this. But if I can leave people with anything... It's that it is so important to get out in nature every day. Um, Even if it's just on your block and even if you're just looking at the trees that are in the tree lawn, um, there is an entire ecosystem there um, and most of it's probably edible. Um, And learning what's right outside your door is going to be, is really powerful to your household and to your community. Well said, but just don't go out your front door and start eating stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. pay attention. Know what you're, yeah, <laughs> know what you're doing first. Big disclaimer there. Yeah, we did cover a lot of ground today. You're absolutely right. So uh, for people that are interested in foraging, you heard a number of sources here today. I'm going to suggest that you jump on Instagram and follow J.B. Douglas and see who's he's following and who's following him because he definitely is in touch with a, a lot of the foraging community. And um, if you use TikTok, I've been on Black Foragers' site. It is pretty cool. And she's really making a name for herself, which is really awesome um, because I just you just don't really see, honestly, a lot of black women taking the lead in food. Yeah. Um, we could definitely use more of that. I actually didn't realize that she was in Columbus, though, so now I'm even more intrigued. So yeah. she's nearby. Okay, very cool. Well, I have to say, uh, this has been really fascinating. I'm kind of geeked out now and ready to run outside and go look at the closest ecosystem. However, um, for people that are interested in foraging, you've given some great resources. Uh, Your own Instagram, JB Douglas, is fantastic. That's how I discovered you. Can you give just some parting words on with advice or some recommendations for people who are interested in starting a venture into foraging? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, get outside every day. Um, And I'll also say, broadly speaking, I I think a lot of us want there to be a short list of rules of how to forage or how to forage sustainably. I think that the reality is there's no substitution for learning the land around you, um, uh, walking it every day, and noticing what's happening in it. A great place to start is to learn about the honorable harvest. That's a indigenous practice around um, harvesting techniques. But um, uh, there's really no black or white. Um, You have to get out there. And good advice, even if you don't want to eat anything in the wild, just get out there. Exactly. Thanks, JB. Thanks, Lisa. The CLE Foodcast is a project of Fork and the Road Productions. My sound engineer is Bill Connors. Thanks to Chef Douglas Katz and the Katz Group of Restaurants and to the Cleveland International Film Festival for your partnership. Please review this podcast on Apple Podcasts if you have some time. 
and subscribe where you get your podcasts to receive notifications of new episodes. Until next time, I hope you have a great week. And remember, stay hungry, be kind, and always, always set a bigger table.